Our scripture this morning comes from Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, for all things are possible with God, or but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth of it. We thank you that you are our provider, that you keep us safe. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to uh, come together, uh, even if it's only online. We know that your spirit inhabits the praises of your people. And so Lord, as we hear the word preached this morning, I pray that you would quiet Ryan's voice and whatever distractions he has, and that through him you would speak clearly to us through the beauty of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, friends. Uh, Virtual fist bump to you. Um, As we get going this morning, we've actually just decided to continue with our series that we've called Wild with Grace. And the whole idea of this series is that uh, we we would experience Jesus's radical grace as he encountered the cross as we prepare our own hearts for the Lenten season. I have this friend named Kurt. Uh, Kurt is an unforgettable kind of guy. Uh, he's, for one, he's six foot ten. That leaves him unforgettable. Uh, and for two, he has the biggest personality of anyone I've ever met before. The first time that I met Kurt, he had just come off of this uh, trip where he had traveled the country, uh, and, and he and his friends had this idea that they would just live in a van, and I don't think it was down by the river, but they were living in this van, and they were just trusting God with everything that they had. And so uh, they didn't take very much money. Uh, they, they didn't line out a lot of places to stay. Uh, and, and, uh, and God just provided for them in miraculous ways. 
And uh, so as I met Kurt uh, for the first time, uh, he also has this kind of signature move where he comes in and he gives you a bear hug. And because he's six foot 10, when he bends over and he stands up, your feet come off the ground. And so anybody that meets Kurt, they're going to get a bear hug. They're going to get lifted off the ground. Kurt's an unforgettable guy. But the thing that struck me about Kurt the most when I first met him was that he was intentionally living without money. You know, I meet a lot of people, myself included, that think about what it would be like to have a lot of money. You know, you kind of have those kind of lottery dreams whenever the lottery gets really big and you think about all the things that you would buy and and how you would pay off your church's debt and all of that kind of stuff. And it's really great and kind of you guys. Um, but, But the thing that we never think about is what it would be like to have nothing. The radical encounter of Jesus with the rich young ruler is that he invites this man to imagine what it would be like to live with nothing. The big idea of where we're going today is this. The only way that we can ever be truly rich is to really know that we're desperately poor. Let me say it again. The only way that we can ever be truly rich is to know that we're desperately poor. We can only thrive in Jesus' kingdom when we know that we desperately need his grace, that there is no rescue plan of our own. So I want to invite you to, to consider the, this question. How do you see grace? When you think about the word grace, what comes to mind as you think about it? For some of us, when we think about God's grace, which is his unmerited forgiveness and favor in all of our lives that we don't deserve, that's what grace is. For some of us, when we think about grace, we think about it as a launch pad. So when you think about a, a shuttle launching off into, into orbit, into outer space, uh, and, you, and you think about it, a, a launch pad is the thing that helps get it going up into the sky, right? The rocket boosters and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times we think about God's grace like that, that it's a launch pad that sets uh, us into spiritual orbit where we can get about our good deeds and, and good behaviors and all of the things that God calls us to. But the thing about the the rocket boosters in the launch pad is that they are pretty much not uh, in use after the rocket is in orbit, right? So sometimes we're tempted to think about God's grace as the thing that gets us into the kingdom, the thing that kind of helps us get on our way in the kingdom, but we no longer think that we need it the longer that we walk with God. That's one way to look at grace. I would say that there's a better way to look at grace, which as Tim Keller has said, it's not just the the ABCs of the faith, you know, but it's the A to Z of the Christian life. I think the better picture or metaphor that we could have when we think about God's grace is that of a foundation. So when you think about a foundation of a house, everything depends on it. It doesn't matter how great the three-dimensional shingles look on the roof if the foundation is rotten. It doesn't matter how beautiful the light fixtures are or the wood finishes are in a house that has a terrible foundation because one thing is for sure, it is going to fall down. It's not a matter of if, but when that house will fall. The Bible's portrait of a Christian's relationship to God's grace is that it's more like a foundation than a launch pad. And this really changes everything about our lives because what it means for us is that as we relate to God's grace, that we're always tethered by it to God. And I would invite us to think about it that way. And it reminds me of one of our values as a church. It's this, that we are humbled by God's grace and we are depending on the Spirit. So there's this thing about God's grace that keeps us coming back to God in humility, knowing that God receives us and that he strengthens us as we pursue him that way.
So I just have three quick points that I want to make about this story of the rich young ruler and how it pertains to how we view God's grace today. And I'll quickly tell you where I'm going before we get there. The, the wildness of grace in this encounter is that Jesus loves this man perfectly. Think about that. He, he says some very harsh things to this man, but there is not one moment as Jesus is talking to this man that he is being harsh with him, that he's being sinful toward him. He's loving him perfectly. So the, the, kind of the three things that Jesus does in this passage with this man to help him see God's grace is this, is that he confronts his assumptions. It's the first thing he does. The, the second thing he does is he reveals that his desires are sinful in his heart. And the third thing he does is he invites him to experience an unimaginable life as he depends on God alone. So let's dig into that together by looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 20 here. The first thing we see Jesus do is the confronta- confrontation. Jesus confronts the assumptions of what we base our lives on. Let me remind you of the, of the narrative here. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Every genuine encounter with Jesus, church, begins with a confrontation. Some of us avoid confrontation at all costs, and some of us like it a little bit too much, and we lean in every time we can, right? But, but the reality is of why every encounter with God, with Jesus, begins with a confrontation is because when the world, when, when the God of the world encounters man, it's a holy confrontation to a sinful condition. And so it, it should alarm us if when God confronts us with his word, it doesn't disturb our spirit a little bit. It doesn't shake our flesh a little bit. It doesn't cause us to question our standing before him a little bit when you encounter God. So there's this rich young man, the, the gospel of Matthew, as it records the story, calls this man a ruler, which would have meant uh, that he probably led the synagogue, that he was probably a wealthy man, that he probably gave a lot of money to help build the synagogue. So this is why Jesus leans in and says, you know the commandments. You're in the synagogue week in, week out. The gospel of Luke also tells us that, that this man, uh, I'm sorry, the gospel of Matthew tells us that he's young. The gospel of Luke tells us that he's ruler. So here's the thing, rich young rulers don't run. In fact, in, in uh, uh, Judaism, in the, in the history of Judaism, when you see wealthy people to, to run, it's not congruent with the lifestyle of a wealthy Jew, of someone that has respect in a community. You, you, you see this also in the, in the parable of the prodigal son when Jesus tells the story about this running father to, to, that's coming out to, to rescue his son and to comfort him with his love. It's, it's a radical thing for someone of status to run. So, so this, this, uh, this young ruler runs up and he kneels down before Jesus, also something that a, a ruler of a synagogue would not do. It'd be strange. And, and, it's, and it's clear that he's heard Jesus teach before um, because he, he calls him a good teacher. 
So somewhere along the lines, he's heard Jesus physically teach or Jesus, he's got firsthand, you know, uh, evidence from someone that he's close to that Jesus is a wonderful teacher. And he, he comes up with this interesting question. And as, as Christians, sometimes we can be judgmental toward this guy because he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and any Christian will tell you this, that we know it's nothing that we can do, that it's God's grace alone that saves us. It's not our own doing uh, so that no one can boast as Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10 tells us. But, but it's a good question I, I, I would uh, just put forth to you to ask. Uh, because there is something that has to be done for us to be saved. Now, now the question is, who does what in that, right? It's, it's a question that we should ask. In fact, I would say this, if you're not asking that question, what should be done so that I can be saved? I think you're off a little bit. You need to ask yourself that question. You may be a little nearsighted on life in this world and, and things like the coronavirus can heighten our awareness of eternity, can't they? And so it's a good question to ask, what must be done for me to receive eternal life? And uh, Jesus does the typical Jesus juke by asking, answering a question by asking another question. And, and Jesus uh, looks at him and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus answers his question with this question because he wants to take the man on a journey that he has not yet been on before by causing him to, to take inventory and ask himself a deeper question than the one he's asking. You know, this guy is asking kind of on the volitional level, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus is trying to take him down to a heart level for him to consider what he's done. And so Jesus really wants this guy to see himself as he is on his own. That's the invitation that Jesus has for him. Consider yourself, rich, young ruler. And so what Jesus does is he leans into this guy's story. Okay, you're a, you're a ruler of a synagogue. Um, let's bring God's law into this. That'll be familiar with you. And uh, you know what you got to do to receive eternal life. You, you, you shouldn't like the answer to this, but you've got to keep all of God's law if you want to receive eternal life. Book of Genesis says the same thing, that we've got to listen to God's word and obey him fully if we expect to get to inherit eternity on our own. That's what has to happen. If you're trying to do this without Jesus, that's the only way. And here's the thing, as his disciples will record, we're recorded saying later, it is impossible to do alone. And so, so, so Jesus leans in and he rattles off a few of the commandments. And, and when you think about the Ten Commandments, they're, they're written on two tablets. The, the, the first tablet of commandments has to do with your vertical relationship to God. You know, do you have any gods before me keeping the Lord's, uh, not, not taking the Lord's name in vain? Those types of things. And the second set of commandments on the tablets is all about our relationship to others. And so do you notice how Jesus talks about all of the commandments about uh, his relationship to others? Because that's what the man is trying to do. He's trying to keep God's law through his relationship with others to inherit eternal life. And, and Jesus kind of uproots the whole thing. And the man says a bold thing. He says, all these I've kept from my youth. But this only reveals his blindness to his condition further. Because he's broken the first commandment and he doesn't even see it. He's blinded by his own goodness. He hasn't loved God alone. Jesus knows this and he goes after it, helping the man to see himself accurately. Now, 
in a, in a prior series, we've talked about the, the law of God as we looked at the Ten Commandments, and we talked about one of the functions of the law of God for Christians is so imperative for us is that it's like a mirror to our souls. And so when you hold up a mirror and you look at your face, it tells you the truth, exactly who you are. Sometimes you don't like that, but the mirror doesn't lie to us. God's law, when we receive it the way that we were always intended to receive it, doesn't lie to us. It shows us exactly who we are. It, 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 as we hold it up, it, it reveals who we are compared to who God has intended us to be. Now, this man and many of us frankly believe that if we can just be morally upstanding citizens, you know, keeping the Big Ten to the best of our ability, then, then we'll be good on our own. But the law of God was never given as a to-do list to save us. It was always given to show us what will be required for us to ultimately be saved. And, and, and when the law becomes a ladder to get to God, we get blinded by ourselves and we shrug off the need of grace. And we do this by reducing the law into something that we can achieve on our own. And when we do that, as Richard Lovelace has so beautifully written, we shrink the work of Christ on our behalf. So the better that we think that we're getting, the less that we need Jesus. So, so this man had no need of Jesus because he was good on his own. But the question is, why is he coming up to Jesus and asking these questions if he's good on his own? Because he's not good. How many of us pretend that we're better than we are? We do that. And, and the only one that suffers is us. When we think that we are further along and don't need God, we don't need Jesus' grace in our life, we're the only ones that suffer because deep down in our souls, like this rich young ruler, we know that we are not good on our own. Needing grace and, and knowing that you're poor is the basic assumption of entering the kingdom. So what we need is, we don't need weaker law, we need stronger law. We need 100% of God's law in our life that will, that will crush us and melt us and show us how much we need Christ. We, we shouldn't lower it to, to external morals. I haven't killed anyone. Remember what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount? He says, well, if you've hated someone in your heart, it's like you've killed them. Okay, everyone's guilty of murder now, okay? And so... What we should do is let the law of God, let the word of God convict our hearts so that the grace of God will not be cheapened in our souls. The gospel is so beautiful because in the gospel, it's the only place that we can be confronted with our sin fully, convicted of our sin as full as we can handle, yet not condemned. You see, we, we, we shrink the law of God and, and act like we're better than we are because we think that somehow our status with God, our inheritance of eternity will change. But that's never what Jesus says. Have you ever noticed the people that Jesus approaches in, this, in, this, in his life on this, on this earth that receive him favorably? Are they not the most broken people? They are the people that you think there is not a snowball's chance that that person's ever going to get saved. Those are the people that are ready to receive the kingdom because they've got, no, they've got no rescue plan on their own. But it's always the people that seem like they've got it together that have the hardest time following Jesus. I love what Martin Luther, the reformer, said about the relationship in the law and the gospel for the Christian. He said this, the law is for the proud and the gospel is for the brokenhearted. And I don't know about you, but I vacillate between those two on a daily basis. Sometimes I'm far too proud when I wake up in the morning. 
God, look what I'm going to do for you today. I need the law to crush me. Sometimes when I go to bed at night, I'm grieving because I just feel like there's no way that God could use me in this world. I need the gospel. We need the law and the gospel to take full effect in our hearts. So we are confronted by grace because a a sinful human meets a holy God and he doesn't run away from us. That's good news for us today, church. For this man, the law had not yet crushed him, showing his deep need of grace. So let's see what Jesus does with him next. Our second point is about revelation, what Jesus does to, to be kind to this man and reveal his true condition. Jesus uproots our hearts and shows us what our functional idols are, the things that we worship and trust. Here's what, here's what Jesus goes on to say. Jesus, looking at him, key word right here, loved him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Didn't condemn him, loved him. And said to him, and you just lack one thing. You know, I know that you've, you've kept the whole law according to what you've said. Just lack one thing, all right? Go sell all that you have and just give that to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great positions. So so Jesus interprets God's law for the rich young ruler here. And and let me just say this first. The rich young ruler, I don't want you to get the wrong picture about who this guy is. He would have been the perfect front man for Jesus's movement, according to the disciples. You you remember just before this in Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 13, um, there were people that were bringing children up to to Jesus and and wanting Jesus, the, the greatest rabbi of all time, to bless their children. And uh, the disciples say, basically, hey, Jesus ain't got no time for that. Get these kids out of here. And then Jesus rebukes them on the spot, doesn't he? And he says to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. To such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, let me flip this on you, disciples. Whoever doesn't come to me like a child shall not enter the kingdom. That's what he says to him. So the disciples have this idea of who would be the perfect person to kind of be the poster boy for, for the kingdom of God and this movement that Jesus is ushering in. And it's not kids. But Jesus says, hey, there's something those kids have that actually everybody needs. And it's this, it's this childlike faith, this trust. This, you see, the, the thing that kids have that adults need is they have faith. They have trust that they're going to be okay. They have trust in the sovereignty of God. I haven't, I haven't met one child yet that is freaking out beyond measure about the coronavirus, Right? And I'm not saying that, that it's, we should take caution, but you just notice that, that there's something that children bring into a relationship to God that each and every single one of us need. And the disciples, you know, they, they kind of are still learning this piece, and that's why they, they kind of bring the rich young ruler to Jesus, and Jesus says, ah, I don't think this guy's got it. And so Jesus leans into him further here. He says, here's the test if you're really brokenhearted enough to receive the gospel of the kingdom or not. Go and sell everything and give it to people, key word right here, key phrase, give it to people who can do nothing to save themselves. That, that's the key part of this passage, is that not only does he call him to sell his stuff, he didn't say, hey, give it to the synagogue. He says, sell your stuff and give it to undeserving poor people who can never do anything for themselves. They can never become you. 
That's the thing that really kind of twists the knife in this rich young ruler's heart is because they're undeserving people who can't be like him. They can't pull it together enough for themselves. They can't make it happen for themselves. And I just picture Jesus kind of saying to this guy, you see, you think you have real treasure, but you don't have it yet, but you can. This will all burn up in the end, but take away your safety net and see what it is that you really depend on That's what's necessary for receiving real treasure. And the man hears it, and and, and he goes away disheartened. That word means to grieve. He goes away grieving what Jesus has said because the encounter just happened to go a little differently than what he had imagined. And this guy's a powerful guy. He's used to people listening to him, kind of bowing down to him because he has such influence. And Jesus does none of that with this man. But keep in mind, he's loving him perfectly this entire time. There's not a way that Jesus could have loved this man more than to tell him this. And Jesus, is what he's doing is he's helping this man x-ray his heart to reveal uh, the real condition of it. And, and what it does for us, church, is it serves as a warning. And here's the warning, that it's not just the bad things that can keep you from a relationship with Jesus. Sometimes it's the good things. That's the thing that's so bizarre about this encounter with with Jesus. We we know about, you know, the bad things. As Christians, they're the things that we try to play spiritual whack-a-mole with in our life, right? Oh, lust pops up, greed pops up. We're trying to put those fires out all that we can. But for this guy, it's the things that we would want for our children. Who wouldn't want your children to be financially independent? Who wouldn't want your children to have a good relationship where they don't know a day that they haven't known God? But it's those things that have the potential to keep us from Jesus. That's the warning for us this morning. It's not our unrighteousness, but it's the potential of our self-righteousness. And the most loving thing that Jesus could have done for this man is to let him walk. He didn't chase him and say, oh, wait, 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 just sell half of it. I'm just kidding, just sell half of it. Then you can follow me. He let it sit with the guy because he loved him so much that he wanted his heart to change. He does the same thing with us, doesn't he? The man walked away sorrowful and grieved for he had great possessions. So my question to you as you consider this is where is the rich young ruler alive in your heart today? You know that it is, right? You know that you have that potential. Where is the heart of the rich young ruler alive in you? Where is it that you you can say, you know, with a good conscience, you know, I'm good today. I'm pretty good on my own. I, I can kind of handle this day today. I got this on my own. Or where is it that you might say, God, you can have everything, but that one thing over there, just leave that one alone. For that might be our health. That might be our money. I don't know what it is for you. Just, you can have everything, but not that. What is it about you and your understanding of yourself and who you are that has the potential to blind you from seeing yourself as you really are? What is that for you? Will you have the courage to ask God in faith to reveal that to you today? Will you ask him to show himself to you? Because church, we gotta remember the rich young ruler. Because the moment that we forget the rich young ruler, the man that is good things keep him from God is the moment that we get in danger. Lastly, I wanna share this is that Jesus, he not only confronts the man, he not only reveals the man's heart to him, but he invites the man to a life that, uh, that 
is unimaginable for all of us and seems impossible. Here's, here's what the rich young ruler didn't know that we can know, that in the economy of God's grace, the law of God can crush us in one moment and we can feel secure in Christ more than we ever have in the next moment, that we can be fully vulnerable and present and open about our sin before our Father in heaven and even our community that God has saved us into and yet not be condemned for those things. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that unbelievable to think about that? That we don't have to protect ourselves, that we don't have to hide behind our own righteousness? So Jesus invites this rich young ruler and the rich young ruler in all of us to this impossible life that's far better than we can imagine. You know, the rich young ruler didn't take him up on the offer in this text, but who knows if he did in the grand scheme of things? None of us do. We don't see the end of the story. So Jesus' disciples are kind of standing around watching what's just happened. They're observing it. And here's, what, here's how the encounter goes. Jesus looked around, this is Mark chapter 10, verse 23, and said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? He's, he's saying that there's a potential blinding nature of wealth. How difficult will it be that for those? And, and the disciples were amazed at his words. They couldn't kind of believe what he was saying. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man is, it is impossible, with God, but not with God for all things are impossible with God. So if this guy isn't a candidate for the kingdom, who can be saved? That's what they're saying. This was the guy, Jesus. You just, you just ran him off. I just want you to know that. If we wanted this thing to blow up, you just missed your opportunity. Seems impossible. If this guy can't be the one, then who can? Even to Jesus' disciples, a complete life of faith seemed impossible. Now, it makes me wonder this. If following Jesus seems pretty easy and effortless to me, it makes me just ask the question, am I really following him? Right? It's, it's, a, it's a hard question to ask, but I think the text invites us to ask it. Because Jesus says that it is absolutely impossible to follow him in our own strength. Anytime someone becomes a genuine follower of Jesus, this text tells us that it's absolutely miraculous. That there's, that there's nothing that's ordinary about a life and a soul being raised from the pit of hell. There's nothing ordinary about that. Anyone that abandons his or her own rescue plan for life and turns to Jesus, that's a miraculous situation is what Jesus is telling his disciples. And, and uh, the rich young ruler, kind of coming back to him, his problem is not primarily a money problem. This is not a money sermon. This is, a, this is a, a priority of your soul kind of sermon. It's not primarily a money problem. It's a spiritual problem that just happens to reveal itself through this man's relationship with money. The same way that your spiritual problems will reveal itself through different things in your life, through your money, through your joy, through all of those types of things, your, the state of your soul will be revealed. It may be obvious to everyone else except for you, just like for this rich young ruler here. His grasp on money and appearance or morality is robbing his soul of true treasure. 
This is why Jesus is asking him to just imagine not having it all for a second. What would your plan be? Where would your joy be if you just didn't have it all? He's asking him to consider what it would be like to be spiritually bankrupt. To have no plan B. Because there's this particular blinding effect that not only money, but morality can have on our souls. It can make us, it's the good things that can keep us from true neediness before God. And why? Because it's how Jesus won grace for anyone who's ever had faith in him. Remember what Jesus said from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says this. This is what Paul writes about Jesus. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in every way, spiritually rich, materially could have been rich, all of those things, he owns cattle on a thousand hills, this world, this kingdom is his, that though he was rich, he made a choice about how he would live in this world for the sake of our souls. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, rich young ruler, for your sake, Ryan Johnson, for your sake, he became poor. He gave it all up so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, church, that's the only way that any of us ever get rich in an eternal way, is that we have to become poor. That's why Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Are you needy enough to be saved by Christ is the question. Jesus can ask this man to depend on him alone and not his stuff because Jesus will go into more poverty to win our souls than we could ever, ever imagine. So why does Jesus do this? Because he loves us and he has given away everything so that we can be known for who we are, not who we think we're supposed to be. The only way we get the kingdom is by giving away the kingdom of self. That's the only way we get it. It's not just a money thing. It's also this kind of sense of prideful morality for us. It's everything that we can achieve and trust in that is not utterly dependent upon Jesus. When you think about what Jesus has done for you, does it, does it ever move your heart? Does it ever kind of melt your soul? Does, does grace ever amaze you? You know, not just when you've really blown it and he meets you in that, but when you're really doing well, does it just humble your heart and your soul as you think about what Jesus has done for you? Does it surprise you about how good and rich and deep that reality is? Does grace actually seem amazing to you? Does it lead you to tears when you think about what Jesus has rescued you from? Because when God's grace undoes us, our hardened and prideful hearts begin to soften and our hands begin to open and our judgment begins to dissipate because the promise of grace is that good for us. Jesus has come to free us from the kingdom of self by giving us his kingdom. So where's the rich young ruler alive in you? And when you let the Holy Spirit into that part of your heart as well, let's pray together. Father, I thank you um, just for technology and the opportunity to be together as a community of faith, uh, even when we're supposed to be apart. Lord, I, uh, I know for myself that, uh, that there are times in life when I've got this kind of rescue plan on my own, this financial rescue plan or this, this morality rescue plan that I depend on far more deeply 
than I do Your grace. It's in those moments, Lord, that I need to be crushed by Your Word, melted by Your Word, so that I can be humble enough to receive Your grace. And I, I have a feeling that the same is true for our, our people, our congregation. Would You melt us and show us how great and amazing Your love is for us? And would you not hold back the hard things that need to be uprooted in us so that we can receive more fully the person and work of Jesus in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.